Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to The Sound of London. This is Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. And immigration is very much forming a part of the debate around Brexit. Or Bremain, for that matter, when we go to Brevote later this month. Did you know, though, that we have a museum to immigration here in London? Oh, yes, we do. And that's where we're going this week. It's worth flagging up, and it's something I bring up in the conversation that these ideas that often get bundled together, that is immigration and economic migration and asylum and uh, people who are refugees, these ideas, they are distinct, they are separable, although in my mind they kind of sit uh, clumsily across each other like a Venn diagram. But as I point out, those terms are not interchangeable. My guest wholeheartedly agrees, and yet we do seem to spend quite a large portion of the conversation talking about a particular sort of immigration. I thought about whether it was necessary to adjust the show in various ways to correct a perceived imbalance or to anticipate a misunderstanding of my point of view. But the museum is located in the East End, and a lot of what we're talking about is the story of people coming Coming to the East End of London. I don't think that the sum total of the story of immigration is the story of the refugee, for example. Anyway, I'll leave that there and let the episode do the talking. We've been good and busy on Twitter on the last week. Lots of positive vibes coming at us following the appearance of Secret London Runs. My friend Lutz Reuter was amused that I needed to be schooled in geocaching, as indeed I did, and Roaming Required was kind enough to provide me with a free education. Thank you, guys. Ali Lightbourne is fired up by the idea as well. Chris Roberts, meanwhile, been on the show, of course. Uh, he's at One Eye Grey on Twitter. Is fired up by the Garden Bridge. I, for one, am sorry to see the new mayor getting behind the Garden Bridge project. One of the arguments he gives is that it would be more expensive now to stop the project than to move forward. So much for principles. And by the way, this sounds a bit funky to me, the idea that it's cheaper to build than not build something where no building has yet started. Sounds like a lot of consultants and PR people might be making some good money out of this. At Folly for London is a good Twitter handle to follow on this. And of course, the work of our writers on Londonist. I think we're going to be awarding Super Listener of the Week status to Jen. That is Jen on the go on Twitter. She's uh, just finished 100 episodes of another podcast and now can catch up on a Londonist out loud, she says. Um, I asked her how far back she is. She's in 2012. She's just downloaded 50 on her iPod and she's going to listen solidly from there forward. I would congratulate Jen on her loyalty and perseverance, but of course she won't hear that congratulation for a good few months yet, so uh, I won't bother. Okay, without further ado, let us proceed eastward. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before, just a stone throw from your front door. from the verdant meadows and rolling hills of uh, Princelet Street in the east end of London, just off Brick Lane. No, not really. It's uh, two rows of townhouses facing each other. It's a grey, murky day. But with me to brighten it up is Susie Symes. She's the chair of trustees at 19 Princelet Streets and behind one of these 
wonderful facades uh, with the, the old doors with the paint peeling off is a museum. Hi, Susie. It is a museum. It's an extraordinary museum, one of the small gems of London and also famous around the world. But you were joking about being in the meadows of Spitalfields, but actually not so far off. We never had any hills. But these are Spital Fields. And up until 300 years ago, where we are standing, was not streets of elegant Georgian townhouses. It was the fields surrounding the Priory of St Mary Spittal. And it was growing fruit and vegetables for the Romans onwards in that city, which is just at the end of our street, looming over us, the, the blocks of the financial heart of London. So here we are sandwiched between rich, wealthy city of London and iconic Brick Lane and then a lot of social and economic disadvantage going off to the east. So this is a place in between where we're standing. Yes, you, you do get used, don't you, in the place names of London to them in their modern context and forget, for example, uh, I arrived here at Moorgate and then there's the Moorfields Eye Hospital and, and those two things, as soon as you take them, literally suggest a much more bucolic environment. Well, absolutely, and here we are in the borough of Tower Hamlets, which is not named after the number of tower blocks in the borough, but the little hamlets that were out here in the fields, in the farmland, surrounding the Tower of London, so tower Hamlets. So you're in a, a new suburb compared to that Roman city of 2,000 years ago. And it's the way in which this suburb's developed, and the way in which this house has developed, that make this one of the more famous listed buildings in London. And yet when you stand here with me looking at it, at first sight, isn't it just like every other house in the street? Well, yes, if we're really drilling into that idea, uh, it is. And as I came down Brick Lane to get here, I was taking note of any dates that I could see. Some of the buildings there are dated with embossed plaques uh, saying 1789. I think this one goes a little bit further back than that, but it's got those tall sash windows. It's got stone arch windows further down. And it's, uh, it looks slight, slightly grander, perhaps, than some of those uh, next to it, only in that it's got an arched door, whereas the others are square. Spot on. Rectangular, and I should say. this is one of the starts of the exploration of this extraordinary architectural gem, is to notice that, yes, it has these Georgian windows like everything else, but when you get down to the ground floor, there are some surprises. There's an arch. We've been changed with being modernised so what's really special about this building is how the changes to the architecture reveal changes in the surrounding society and communities because all these changes to this building have been made by new migrants arriving to the docks at the east making their way through an area like this wanting to get into that rich wealthy city that we can see at the end of the street so the buildings constantly changing reflecting changes in society and it survived through poverty to tell a story in its architecture so not unlike our neighbor around the corner dennis Seaver's house that tells a story through the characters of this wonderful fictionalised account that's made to happen in the Georgian Terrace. Here, you have a different Georgian Terrace, slightly more highly listed. But also the story of an immigrant. And you're or mul- multiple immigrants. Multiple in immigrants. In our case, real histories. And it's not to say that one is more important, better than the other. It's one of the intriguing things about comparing these two properties. Different kinds of authenticity. Different kinds of storytelling. But all trusting the visitor, trusting you to use your imagination to engage with a physical place, to understand something bigger and broader about where we live. You can hear there's going to be lots to see, lots to talk about, particularly in terms of the cultural makeup, not only of this area, but of London and perhaps the UK more widely. I guess, in particular, perhaps because it's one of those issues that we need to get our politics out of the way and uh, maybe say something about where you're coming from as well, Susie, if we can. Because, of course, the subject of immigration, this is the Museum of Immigration, immigration is all over the news. And uh, I guess if you had a, a banker's bonus museum, it would probably be just as 
about uh, as much on a fault line. I think it might get funded a bit more quickly. If it was a bank- <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure, actually. They're quite, um, they're quite careful with their money, shall we say. Um, I think the key here is that migration's a human story. It's a story that goes back centuries and centuries. It's a global story. What people need to find here is the way in which these threads connect over time, over place, over histories, over cultures, at the same time as recognising that migration, the debate around migration, discussion of refugee issues, and the appalling conditions facing many people who are fleeing into refuge today... That's something that's present for all of us in our societies, and particularly present in London, which is a very, very highly migrant city. Connect- does, the, does the museum, though, have a political leaning? I mean, is there, is there one uh, inherent in the idea of having an immigration museum? We think a museum is a place in which to muse. It's a place in which to talk. It's a place in which to open up and share and sometimes disagree with ideas. So it's an engagement with ideas that matters, not presenting particular ideas. And amongst our very diverse volunteer team, you would find people with a very different range of views. There would be some people who would be completely in favour of open borders. There would be others who would be really in favour of restricting and very tight immigration controls. Um, Clearly, as a museum about immigration, you would find people who would be broadly more sympathetic than negative. But beyond that, there is no single story, because there's no single story of London, no single story of migration, no single experience. What's important is people encounter and begin to understand a range of migrant stories, a range of refugee issues, and are then better informed, more able to reflect both politically, economically and indeed emotionally and empathetically to make up their own minds where they stand on these issues. Well, we're going to head through the front door in the moment. We have a key in hand. Uh, Susie, where have you migrated from? You've come from that area north of Hemel Hempstead, haven't you? Yep, I've come from up there in Manchester. Hello, there it is. <laughs> I've come, come from up there in Manchester. Though, actually, of course, in the not-too-distant past, great chunks of my own family were migrants from... Uh, Constantinople, as they would have said, or Istanbul in Turkey on the edge between Europe and Asia. So those are the most recent incomers in my own family. That's an amazing place. If you, if you want to look at a, a melting pot uh, somewhere on the globe, that's the, that's the place to look. Absolutely. Well, here we are on the front doorstep. Now, I'm not going to give away our secrets because I hope people will see, but the experience even starts before you go through the door because you can find written in the pavement some words about how important this home is. This house is a home. And how does it uh, touch on the experiences that we all need to feel and think about today? Let's try using the right key. Come along in. Changes immediately you come in from the bright light of the, the street to the the dark of the hallway. I'm going to use the word gloomy. This isn't going to go down well, but it is a uh, it is a gloomy corridor. Um, but I. Atmosphere. <laughs> <laughs> the atmosphere being a gloom. <laughs> no, well, I love this kind of building, and it is notable for two things. One, for being a, a fantastic stone flagged corridor, very solid feeling, uh, lots of wood, and uh, we can see a long way back into a. Um, a wood-floored back room with very sparse furnishings. Reminds me of a Western saloon from where I am here. But the other thing that's quite notable, and I know we're going to find ourselves talking about what this is a symptom of, are the acro props that are right in the middle of the hallway here, four of them keeping the ceiling up, keeping the building aloft. Keeping the building aloft. You see, these buildings were not built to last. They were built to last 100 years. But now we see them as beautiful and precious, really one of the most perfect parts of Georgian London. So they're listed buildings, they're a conservation area. We strive to protect and use them and give them a new economic and cultural purpose. But really, it's a bit of cheap building from 300 years ago. So to make them usable, as in this case a place of education, is something that requires quite a lot of capital so we're raising money right at this moment 
in order to be able to do so. So we hope that when people come here, they'll make donations. We hope that even some people will encounter what we do and some beautiful visual images online and may feel motivated. Every little helps. Every little helps. Even people who send us a fiver, that's a big contribution to the money we're raising to make sure that this building will be open to the public all of the time in future. Well, we've just moved through now into a side room and in a building on this scale, a side room is quite an impressive thing. To our left as we come in, there's a storeroom and if if you were in the habit of collecting old pieces of interesting furniture, then you would be in pig heaven. This is the place for you. Um, there's a pile of suitcases turned into a display cabinet on our uh, in the centre of the room. Isn't it more is. suitcases that are the symbol of movement? Pretty much all of us have a suitcase. Yeah, if you were, if you were, these are no ordinary suitcases. Though. If you were on a railway platform in the 1930s and uh, standing next to the porter's cabin, then this is what you'd see. Is a collection of suitcases, some of them we bought in markets. Others actually belong to the migrants of some of our families. Some of the volunteers here have shared their own family suitcases with others that we just bought on Brick Lane Market. As people start to move into the building, what feeling are you hoping to cultivate within them? I think what grabs most people, the minute they walk into the hallway actually, is a feeling of moving into the past. There's a real change from the outside space to the inside space. And there's a space that's really redolent of the lives of people who've lived here. You're actually about to, you think you're walking just through a space, but you're actually about to walk through what was a rear wall at the back entrance of the house. You're looking into the garden where the children of the refugee family, the Huguenot refugee family, who first lived in this house who escaped to save their lives across the Channel into London, those children played out in what appears to you to be part of the building, but is in fact formerly the garden. It's doing a very good job of disguising that fact. It is indeed. <laughs> and if you find even you see things are slightly concealed here, in suitcases and cupboards, inside this cupboard, something that people stop and think about, written in you know, many, many languages of our visitors, of our streets, of this house... Listen to the building. Listen to the place. This is a place that tells you stories. And the stories come through the changes to the building and the way this extraordinary installation is made in suitcases, telling you about the Huguenots, the Irish, the Jewish who made this very important big change to the building, adding a place of worship onto a house, and the people who have come after people who came from Bangladesh, from Somalia, from the Caribbean, and, of course, the people who are still coming. The room we're in now, and the, the smell of... Uh, well, it's, there's a little damp in there. Um, I'm, you're smelling old building materials. It's a very distinctive smell. Musty's not the right word, but it belongs to that family of fragrances. It's lovely. It's the building giving up its, uh, giving up its fragrances. The room we've moved into now, it couldn't be less like the outside world. It's a galleried, on both sides, hall. At the end, there's an alcove there, a huge alcove. must be 15 feet high, with an arch over the top of it. It looks like a place of worship, and that effect is added to by there being pews along uh, each of the long walls here. It looks very much like a secret church, and the skylight above us, stained glass, not pictorial stained glass, but large coloured panels, is giving the place a lovely saloon-like feel. That's so interesting. You're picking up on a fusion of the way in which places of worship, but places of worship for Jewish people, have been built over centuries, and yet also coming here, building a first tiny little synagogue in the east end of London, back in the 1860s, 1870s, and yet also using English architects, using this coloured glass up up above us in the ceiling that many of us would associate with a Victorian pub rather than a place of worship. So that's that sort of fusion. You're seeing in the architecture what is happening to people as they arrive, make a new home, bring things and ideas, foods, cultures with them, and are also picking up 
from the new society and making something new and fused and exciting and interesting. And that's in the building. So when uh, I can see a couple of dates actually over here. And, well, I'm going to get this wrong, but I wonder whether they're dates from the Jewish calendar. But I can also see, for example, the 24th of August 1934. I'm referring to what looked like gold leaf text that's been added to the wooden partition where people lean down from that upper gallery there's all sorts of names on on every bit of wood panelling you can see there actually some what looks like Hebrew text and Hebrew and English yes what, um, what does it say though what's it all about well some of it is in memory of somebody who died some of it is a modest donation being given on the occasion of somebody's marriage the times that bring us all together as communities when somebody dies somebody's born very small donations because this is a very poor area. People are living on very little in very crowded conditions. So places like this are more than a place of worship, important as that is. They're social and community spaces too. And it's a very, very beautiful space. And it's also a space that is animated by this very small, subtle exhibition made in suitcases... But the space is not filled with objects. It's again, it's actually very different from our friends around the corner, the Dennis Seavers house, which is very full of objects and thoughts and ideas and ornaments. Very different from many museums, which have very dense displays of text and items. This is a place in which people respond through talking, through engaging with quite simple things. A little poetry, a little exhibition of paper boats symbolising the dangerous journeys refugees made 300 years ago as they do today. Small, a very historic television here with a small film made by some of our local children from Tower Hamlets. Many of Bengali family background, but all imagining whether these are children of South Asian families, Caribbean families, white families, they're all imagining being Irish people who came 150 years ago. So it's a space in which people encounter ideas and artworks that they partly fill with themselves and their own experiences. One of the ideas that I'm suspicious of, I guess, in talking about immigration in this context, and I guess we have to acknowledge the area that we're in, and as we've spoken about at length on, on previous podcasts, this area has, of course, been all about immigration and all about specifically poor people immigrating and living and scratching out an existence and quite often pulling themselves up and um, actually moving to other parts of London, other parts of the country, as the next wave of immigrants arrive. It's very, it's very much taken that sort of pattern. With this being a museum of immigration as opposed to necessarily a museum of the local area, I wondered whether there's more of a focus here on uh, immigrants without much money. And I, I noticed that you were almost using the words refugee and immigrant interchangeably there. So I was wondering whether you look also at immigration of well, richer people. I certainly wouldn't use the word, and if I did, I, I shouldn't have done, use migrants and refugees interchangeably because, of course, there are very important legal distinctions. However, we try to look at the mix of experience of people who have moved, some of whom have moved because they've had to and some of whom have moved because they have chosen to. But this house, when it was first lived in, in the 1720s, 1740s, was lived in by people who were themselves refugees from France because of religious persecution, but they were reasonably comfortably off. These are rather grand houses when they're first lived in, lived in by people who have a business, silk weaving, employing workers, bringing skills. So this is a jolly prosperous area 300 years ago. So thinking about that experience and trying to pull out the ways in which new people are discriminated against, whether they're rich or poor, whether they bring skills or they don't, whether they have skins of different colour or different religions, showing the ways in which people are treated differently because they're new, and pulling out some of the common themes of the experience of being a newcomer. So it's using a single house, a single building, in a particular place to pull out this range of stories that, if you like, then leave the house, leave the street, and go out into the wider society and the wider nation. So we're not trying to be the National Museum of Migration. We're a small place. But we're 
we, we treat our visitors, who are schools, universities, members of the public, all sorts of different people come here from all around Europe and North America. But treating them as if these are intelligent people who are capable of making these connections. But we all like stories. Well, I, I also think that we're fed a couple of assumptions and I think we swallow them rather too easily until they become part of our daily diet without us realising. One of them is this question, when people look at boatloads of folk arriving, quite often capsized on the shores of Greece, there's often comments made about the fact that they are, to some large degree, young men, and, well, if they're, you know, if they're young men and they're able to get up on their own two feet, they should be fighting a war back there, and where are the wife and children, all this kind of stuff. Very unnuanced and uninsightful. Well, I think you're right, and I draw out two or three different points from that. One, actually, when you look at people who are migrating, and particularly people who are refugees from war and from peril, this is by no means all male. It's a picture yeah, that's often so. presented. But there are an awful lot of women, there are an awful lot of women with children, there are an awful lot of lone children in camps at the moment, in, in very desperate conditions. Many, many children are not even getting an education, which is a basic thing. If we're not educating children who are in refugee camps, what possible life can they make for themselves in the future? Well, the fact that, the, that we're leaving the children in the refugee camps. Or indeed in this country and in others, often in detention, which is, seems to me one of the worst things we can be doing with small children. Second of all, of course, looking back through history, many people who have made a move in the first place, whether we're talking about young Polish Jewish people coming 100 years ago or we're talking about young men coming from Bangladesh during the War of Independence or afterwards, uh, talking about people today, often people are coming first as that Windrush generation often did. They're coming first, they're trying to find a job, they're trying to get a room to rent, and then they're bringing the family afterwards. They're trying to do what home builders do, which is to look after their families by giving them a safe and secure place to come to first. Yes, they're running point, they are taking the risks themselves. They're not putting their wives and children in jeopardy immediately. They're trying to get the risks out of the way. They're trying to get the risks out of the way and they're trying to build a home and they can live more cheaply initially than the entire family can so what you find and you still find today as you might have done two or three hundred years ago is that there are still a lot of young men living in conditions that most of us would be appalled by in order to save the money which will allow them both to pay for families to come and join them and for them to get the one room which may be a pretty poor quality room this migrants living in very poor conditions being exploited by exploitative landlords didn't go away with rackman you know or whatever it might be in history and of course there's another misconception which i think you've probably skewered already in what you said the idea that you have to be penniless in order to be a refugee and of course well, actually, I've got a couple of friends who've done a bit of time over in Greece and they reported people arriving with mobile phones and a pack of cash, but no home, and their hometown's been blasted away and they've got to nothing other than what they've got on their person. Exactly. There's this complete focus on, oh, well, how can these people be terribly badly off if what they have is the mobile phone? If a mobile phone is carrying what, for many of us, would be those holders of memory, the photographs of your family, the one way of communicating with people back home who want to know whether you're alive or dead, these things that most of us treat as absolute necessities are necessities to people who have nothing else. Um, but it is, of course, equally true that people bring skills, sometimes people bring resources, but they still need to be in a safe place. If you are in a war zone, it doesn't matter how much money you have, that doesn't protect you from bombs falling on your head. Um, well, talk, talking of things falling on our head, I suppose that, that might be the link we're looking for to talk about the state of the place, because it, it's quite clearly in need of a bit of love. It's in need of a bit of money. It gets plenty of love. <laughs> we don't need love. We'll have cash, please. Love is always good. But in the end, love doesn't mend the holes in the roof. Love doesn't replace those acro props with steel beams. In fact, you're looking at some new beams that are just here temporarily because we have some... Polish builders who are helping us by doing some work which is just temporary shoring up repairs to make absolutely certain that there's no deterioration in this building while we are preparing and hoping for the support of the Heritage Lottery Fund over the next two years. So we're actually at a stage where we're fairly close 
to asking the Heritage Lottery Fund for money to help us save this important piece of London heritage. It's a great two-star listed building, after all. Yes, I know you're very keen on mentioning the, the star. What does that mean, grade two-star? It's particularly important. Ah. It's very close to a grade one building. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So you're coming down some concrete stairs. If you look very carefully, you will see the traces of an animal. That lived here Excuse 100 me? years ago. What do you mean I see the traces of an animal? Well, look into the I've concrete stopped, I've stopped steps. walking until we found out what this means. You see, you're quite a tall person. Children see these much quicker than adults do. But can you not see the poor prints that went through the wet concrete? <laughs> I cannot tell you the nationality, religion or colour of this cat. If it was indeed a cat, a small child who was here the other day was quite convinced it was a lion. <laughs> that would be a story. Again, a different smell here. You were very cute picking up on, on the smell and what it meant to you. And what is extraordinary to me is I have stood in this basement kitchen with people from all over the world. Just a few months ago, I was with a group of women, Somali women, who were refugees to Norway. In Norway, and these women have had a terrible time, in Norway they are learning and training to be peacemakers and to go back to help build a peace. And these women stood in this basement London kitchen and said, it smells like my grandmother's home in Somalia. Hmm. So there's a universality about a building like this, as well, well a, as it... a universality about damp by the sound of it. <laughs> that wasn't what you were going for as a line, It is it? not what I was going for. So you were building up nicely. <laughs> What were you going to say? I just think there's something very special about small domestic spaces that have had many different people living in them and different uses. You know, from a very wealthy family from 300 years ago to people living crammed into a single room, to people coming to worship, to ladies sitting and sewing in their very little spare time when they'd otherwise have been in sweatshops. There's something that a building like this captures and gives you that feeling back. And I'm an economist, I'm not a very emotional person, but this, this building captured me in that way when I first walked into it. And the longer I spend here, the more I get that sense of different lives that have passed through a building like this. I'm not going to let you do yourself such a disservice either. When I cast my eyes around this room, what comes to mind is those places, very, very close to actually, Shoreditch area, where they've taken a building that was perhaps tarted up in a way of which they did not approve. They've stripped off the cladding, they've stripped off the plaster on the inside and revealed raw brick, and then they've stuck a whole load of expensive air ducts in and they've gone for that shabby chic look. This is original shabby chic, <laughs> and there's no chic going on here. Uh, but uh, there's, We've got some flowers. The, yes, you have, yes. <laughs> uh, so I think elderflowers. 
Sticking out of a champagne bottle, my goodness. Maybe we are in chic territory after all. But the, the feeling here is of realness and solidity. It's real. It is more solid than some of the acro props might uh, make you feel. It's a solidity of experience and a solidity of ideas, I think, is what's important here. The way in which you see you're looking at some poetry written by children aged nine and ten from the, from the small primary school around the corner, and all of these children imagined being the Jewish children of the 1880s. They've written poems about home. People are homeless. People have homes not like me because I'm a refugee. I want to cry away. I want to see my home today. But I got away. I will remember my family forever. At least I got some work. I want to run away. I can't. It's the only thing I got. The only day I get a rest is the day of Shabbat, the Jewish Sabbath, by a small Muslim child, Khaledah Rahman, imagining being somebody a hundred years earlier of a different religion, coming from a part of Eastern Europe, not from a Bengali family. And what's important about this, it, it was an important experience for the children who made this work, but what's more important is the way in which we adults today respond to it because it shows us that we can put ourselves sometimes into other people's shoes it does seem when you look at the way that people vote around the country particularly when there's an election charged up on the issue of immigration it does seem like the places that have actually experienced serious levels of immigration churn are generally a lot more understanding of of it whereas places where it's a looming threat in people's minds in some way. They're the places that tend to be a lot further to the right, I think, in their voting tendencies. I don't know that I'd necessarily put it in right and left terms, but you make a very acute observation, which all the polling and sampling data backs up, is that people who are living in areas where there is a lot of diversity of community and a lot of relatively recent migration are finding that they are very relaxed and indeed often very positive towards new migrants. Whereas people who are living in communities where there is very little or no recent migration are very anxious and negative. Now, why is that? Well, we're human beings, and many of us, as human beings, are rather nervous of things that we haven't encountered. That's that's actually quite a simple psychological explanation for what's going on. It's a little like the attitudes we've seen in changes of attitude towards gay rights and towards gay marriage. You know, one of the slogans in the United States during the campaigning times was, once they know one of us, they change their minds. And that actually was very, very powerful. The people who haven't encountered something are more fearful of it. And that fear, I do think, is people get really wound up by the way issues are covered by much of the press. So you get these, these, these quaint uh, elderly Britons sitting in Spain saying, oh, I don't want to live in London. It's the best country in the world, but it's full of migrants. That's why I don't want to live there. And the, the sort of the, the irony of this situation clearly escapes them because they're living in Spain, really, in exactly the same sort of way. They're complaining about this mythical migrant, the mythical migrant who is both taking people's jobs and at the same time living on Social Security benefits. He's a very cheeky migrant, that one. Very clever indeed. We should be pleased to have such a clever. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, we've moved to another, uh, I'm going to call it a chamber. It's a room, but it reminds me of the orchestra pit at one of our recent venues. And pleased to say that the roof looks as though it's going to remain in a roofly state. More suitcases, and these contain different things. From one of them, uh, 1950s telephone receivers emerge. By the way... Do children still know what a a phone like that does? It is very interesting, because that phone, that old phone that I grew up with... With the spiral cord. ...is still the symbol on a mobile phone for making a call. So it is. So that's the one thing that allows anybody under the age of about 25 to know what that is. But they're still a bit puzzled at the idea that they could pick up the receiver and listen to it. You might be able to guess a little bit. This is poems. Water, there is harmony... Food to eat, water to drink, things to cook, there's life. Bang, the axe hits the tree, still. Bang, children still, stop playing. Bang, 
So again, here, this is a group of children, this particular school, they all came from Bengali Muslim family backgrounds, and these children worked with a visual artist, poet, from Somalia, exploring the experience 20, 30 years ago of leaving Somalia, being in a refugee camp in Ethiopia, making your way to East London, and then spreading out across London. So people from very different backgrounds understanding that experience. Over here in this very bright suitcase is one of our local schools, which is a Catholic school with no Asian Muslim children in the school at all. And we worked with this school thinking about what it was like to come from Bangladesh in the 1970s, having a debate in the class. Do you stay or do you go? Making small, beautiful, sparkly objects to show what you thought you might have brought with you from Bangladesh, coming to make a new life, in this case for economic reasons. Yeah, it would be very interesting if it's okay with you just to skip back to the Somali population. Reason being that we have covered in some serious depth the uh, Huguenot migrants, the Jewish population of the area. I think the Bangladeshi migrants and Bengali migrants have had a fair shout. Um, Nothing about Somalis. They're a a very present group, but I think uh, they tend to be less on people's radar when talking about the history of the area. I think there are a couple of reasons for that. Um, The the Somali migration really started, of course, through Somalis in London 100 years ago. But the Bengali connection with the area goes back longer, smaller numbers, but also Somalis have less stayed in particular areas than some other groups. They've spread out more across London, so are less concentrated in particular areas. The particularly streets in London that are in East London, in Spitalfields, that are very Somali. And there are some amazing Somali cultural centres, interestingly enough, in the old Brady Centre that was set up by a wonderful Jewish woman, Miriam Moses, set up a club for young Jewish women. And that centre is now used mainly for Somali arts. Uh, It has some fantastic events there. But Somalis are more spread out thinly across London. Why why is that? Why haven't they done what the other groups have done? I I, I don't know why that is Mm. so. Yeah, whether that's cultural luck, who knows? I don't know. But equally, that's important to understand about other groups that have been important in this area and important in London that aren't talked about so much. The Irish. You know, if you're in Liverpool or Manchester, people talk a lot about Irish history. Mm. But Irish history tends to get rather lost in London, yet it was quite big in this area, followed immediately after the big Huguenot because, in fact, there were what we might have called race riots. You know, there was some tension between the Irish arriving in an area dominated by Huguenots. Well, the dreaded Catholics were turning up, and the Protestants had fled from Catholics. Second of all, a very classic thing about recently arrived migrants, not always being warm and welcoming to the people who come after. Some people are, but some people see the immediate threat to their jobs, their livelihoods, their homes. Maybe these terrible new people want to marry our daughters and sons. So all those things go on. So there's no single story. Many Huguenots were very generous to people arriving after them. Many Huguenots were very worried and concerned and and withdrew and opposed them. And you find the same story Mm. today happening. You find the story that Iranians who have come early are often not always helpful to Iranians coming later. Yeah, I've heard on various radio talk shows, I've heard Polish migrants very vehemently opposing any further immigration to the country. And these things are very very classic patterns, and it used to make me quite angry that there was that lack of sympathy. But, you know, one of the things about meeting a number of people here and talking with them and having this safe space to have that conversation is to understand... People's fears of being reminded of a bad experience they went through, and also the self-protection. Yeah, survival as well, isn't it? Yeah, survival, and also an anxiety which was very present. You know, people don't like to talk about this, but has been present in some Jewish communities too, about Jews coming from Eastern Europe pre and post Second World War. A deep sympathy, wish to help and to support, and a fear that these new impoverished people might drag them down and make people... A a fear of resurgent racism. 
of the kind we are starting to see even in London today, that because so much anxiety is stirred up and stoked up, landlords being asked to check on whether somebody is a migrant or not a migrant, have they got proper status, who do you ask? Do you ask a white person with a posh voice or do you ask somebody with a darker skin and a foreign accent? So there's a kind of racism that comes from this and people are fearful of being put in that bracket. Yeah, right, so you get you get here, you get established and you blend in as much as possible. You, you, well, that, well, that's kind of not true, though, is not it? Not everybody has done that. No, we can certainly think of communities around here currently which uh, really don't integrate all that much. Yeah, there are plenty of communities and there have been plenty of communities down the ages that have chosen not to do that. But it's not a single community. It's groups within the group of newly arriving Jews. It's groups within. There are the people who live in an area where they go to the Polish shop and there are all the other Polish people who are mixing quite happily and educating and going to school and university with everybody else. So that's always been a pattern, that there's a spectrum within communities. But I think people at times, particularly when there's fear being stoked up, You can understand why people want to, they don't want people coming in and then to be associated with the new rather than the established. And it's this us and them thinking that is so much of what we need to do something about. We are all humans here. Well, most of us. Most of us. <laughs> the, the, there's something that's been staring me in the face and I only now realise it. Um, with the East End being all about these waves of immigration, I can't think that I've seen, and again, maybe it's under my nose, but I can't think that I've seen establishments, for example, that are obviously run by part of the Syrian community. I'm not sure whether we have an established East End Syrian community, for example, or whether people coming in from places like Eritrea or some of those trouble spots that are churning up a lot of refugees at the moment. Are they gaining a foothold in the East End? Definitely, but it's the further east east end, because think about how gentrified this near east end has become. And again, you see that that thing of waves too. Some of the earlier gentrifiers, the architectural historians, the artists, being really quite snooty about some of the new gentrifiers, the bankers from the city and so forth. So there's a discrimination within these new white, mainly white gentrifiers. So where people are settling has now moved further east from where it has been historically for the last 300 years. But yes, you absolutely do find new community people from Afghanistan feeling comfortable in the first instance, leaving as close to each other as possible, support through language, through food, through communities, all of those things. The, the more we, the people who are currently here, make people feel safe and welcome, the more they become part of the societies and the communities around them. The more we make people feel unwelcome and fearful, what would you do? you would cluster together with people like you. So if we want people to fully engage with the society to which they're coming, then surely the first thing we have to do is be fully engaging with them. It's like making a guest welcome in your home. They're going to play their part better in your home if you are a welcoming presence. Hmm. Do you think we're a welcoming presence in the eyes of the world? In the eyes of the world... Probably not. I think there are many individuals and communities and groups and localities who are hugely welcoming and hugely responsive and supportive. But this idea that the world is flocking to our shores because we are seen as a a very specially generous place, it's really, again, not borne up by the data. We're taking a very, very small proportion of Europe's refugees, for example, and a very, very small proportion of the world's refugees. So there's a perception inside of generosity and a perception outside that makes people often go to other places. But also a shock when people who do get here arrive of realising many of the divisions and the income inequalities within our own European societies. People are often shocked making it from other parts of the world and realising that not everybody is incredibly well off. 
in European countries, that there are people who are homeless, there are people who are hungry, there are people who are badly paid, there are people who live in terrible conditions. That can be a shock for people who have an idea that it's a more equal, wealthy society. Yes, inequality, that's not just a buzzword, that's a real issue. Another issue that I realise is pressing upon us is that if we don't mention Dennis Seaver's house fairly soon, you're going to stamp on my toes because I didn't remind you. I think what's interesting to note here about the comparison is that 19 Princess Street is a very similar size in very similar streets to the Dennis Seaver's house. And yet the way in which issues are addressed is very, very different. But there is always this use of story and imagination. But Dennis Seaver's house is a very immediately beautiful place, full of objects. 19 Princess Street is, for many of us, a very beautiful place. But its beauty comes through the fact that there's no intervention. It comes through the fact that the bricks and the paint is peeling and that you can feel the lives... And that what is done here is a display made by children imagining being other people. So some people would see that as not being authentic. Are those authentic diaries? No, they're written by today's children imagining being somebody 300 years ago. You're you're collaborating, though, with uh, Dennis Seaver's house, aren't you? I wonder how that's come about. I think it's just very interesting for people to explore these two very different approaches to history and two very different approaches to learning from history. What for us is hugely important is the hope that what people find here is a way not only of enjoying history, but of moving from the history that Dennis Seavers has and we explore to the present day and some of these present issues that you've been talking about, and to how you use that to shape policies and behaviours in the future. For us, what's so important about a place like this is exploring history so that you can be part of helping to change and make a better, safer, fairer future. That connection is hugely important. So in theory, somebody interested in these issues, or just in old buildings, because there's plenty to see just on the architectural side of things and the atmospheric side of things, could make a day of it and head out to the East End. But there's, uh, there's an issue about getting behind the uh, front door here, isn't there? Well, while the building is so fragile, and also while it's run on an absolute shoestring by really dedicated, loving and passionate volunteers... There's a balance between those volunteers spending their time, as they have been doing over the past year or two, raising the funds to repair the building so that you can't see it's been done, but that you will be able to come in far more easily on a regular basis, particular openings during the week, probably free most of the time, and be able to explore at will. That's what we want to do. And in order to be able to get rid of these props, to make everything safe for you to go up into the attic, we need to raise funds. And by holding the building and opening it occasionally, and these very special openings coming up jointly with the Dennis Seavers House, a part of that, that way we can preserve the building for the next 50 years. I should say you probably picked up from the... Sound effects in the background. We've got the sound technician to do the effects of somebody walking upstairs. I hope it was convincing. We're now standing on the balcony looking down onto that first large back room with the writing on the wood panels. Behind us there's a curious little room here. This looks as though it was one of the upper rooms of the original building. And there is a delightful looking place to stay here. Accommodation for one, a mattress on the floor, a stained pillow... This is an exhibition. This is one of my favourite parts of the exhibition. This is is what 800 quid gets you per week in uh, East London. In Spitalfields, exactly, that's right. So what you've got is an installation made by an artist, uh, Susanna Tamamovic, whom I admire greatly, who herself came here from Bosnia. And Susanna is picking up on the conditions in which many people live when they first arrive, but also the very confused thoughts that you have as a new arrival, negotiating a new language, negotiating new ideas, the sorts of things people say to you, the losses that you feel. You know, you can't just wipe it out. 
written very beautifully on an old shabby cupboard here. You can't just wipe out what has happened to you. The plate here says, I never imagined it was possible to be so hungry. Mm. The cup says, he kept saying, I was a mug, but I don't understand. So on the mug itself. And you see the confusion that we all have when we're places we don't know, speaking languages we don't speak very well, of exactly what's being said to us. What does it mean? Are we being insulted? Is it a joke? And I love particularly this one. On the glass of the door that divides the original 1719 house from our 1869 Jewish edition, I'm looking at this glass and I'm seeing you and I'm seeing me and we could have seen the Polish builder who just walked past us while we were talking. You and I, we're not that different. But it's not pretending we are all the same. It's recognising those common experiences, common needs, common hopes that human beings share. And you could be standing here with anybody. So you've got a space, you've got a beautiful Georgian panelled room. Look at this little fireplace with all the flowers on it. I often think of this as a very feminine room. I imagine Mrs Augier, the first lady to live in this house, sitting here and sewing and looking out into her back garden full of flowers and the flowers on the fireplace. And yet we... <laughs> Sorry, that's just made me realise how utterly transformed it's been, uh, like nothing else that's been said so far. So, Miss, what's her name again? Mrs. Mrs. Augier, or Mrs. Madame Augier. Madame Augier. So she'd be looking at a flower garden, and uh, within a space of about 100 years, a Jewish place of worship would have consumed yes. her garden. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And yet, by looking, you can just glimpse through the upper glass you can glimpse the trees in the garden next door. So you've got... Again, I I think one can trust people. I don't think you have to show everybody everything on computer screens all of the time. This is a place where you use your own imagination and pick up on the visual cues and the conversations you have with me or the many other volunteers who would be around when you come, just sort of encouraging you to explore a little for yourself, to work out where the building changed, who changed it, why did they change it, how did these people live, were they sleeping on a scruffy, grubby mattress on the floor like this, or at what period would they have been sleeping in a rather beautiful bed, but the servants downstairs were sleeping on the stone floor and waking up in the morning to heat the water to bring you the water up if you rich person were lying in your rather beautiful bed with your silk festoon blinds at the window. You can tell all of these stories in one space and also bring the story bang up to date, made by artists who themselves arrived here, Margreta Kern, Susanna Tamarovic, from, from Bosnia themselves. So it's a very different approach from the Dennis Sievers house, and you will find that some people absolutely adore the, the sort of glamour and beauty of one and don't like the shabbiness of the other, and others will see them both as two very different ways of relating history to today. At which point, because of the onward march of time, we have to slam our foot on the brake of this conversation and hurl ourselves from the vehicle. That was a very strange metaphor to finish with. Uh, If you uh, want to get involved and be here yourself, what's the best way to do that? The Dennis Seavers House website is booking some amazing joint partnership visits throughout June, uh, where for the very modest price of £25, you get a special tour of the Dennis Seavers House, a little walk through the five minutes through the streets of Spitalfields to here, and a special tour here so that's a very special way i would say as well 25 quid's not cheap but having visited both places i reckon that's a darn good day out i think that's a superb day out and you go to spitalfields market and you walk along brick lane and you explore the byways of the area as well as some of the more flashy parts so you can get some super food you have a super trip you explore two really magical buildings and compare and contrast like the essays have it And equally, if that doesn't fit with you for June, we have occasional openings for Refugee Week and in the rest of the year when you can come and have a tour here. We hope you'll make a donation, but you don't have to pay. 
and structural engineers especially welcome. Structural engineers are always welcome. <laughs> For today, from 19 Princelet Street, Susie Simes, thanks very much. And you've been extremely welcome. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Thank you. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Susie Simes. Thanks to, to Philip Black and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. And I'm Quentin Wolfe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.